You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and joining me right now is Jake Truscott, who is a colleague of mine from my master's degree days. He is currently a UGA PhD candidate in political science, researching the federal courts and politics on social media. So, Jake, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing great, Martha. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. So... Wow, you've had a lot to look at, that's for sure, in this particular uh, term. Uh, Everyone, I think, sort of expected this to be a busy term with the new makeup of the court. Uh, But did it did it meet expectations? Yeah, so I I think the best place to kind of start there is say it was an interesting term. It was even then I think that might be underselling it a bit. I've been trying to think of an analogy here for a few days to kind of frame what this term was. And I think and bear with me here. I think the best way to kind of frame this is to think of it as sort of like a Thursday night CBS drama or a soap opera of some kind where you have those usual cliches, the usual tropes that you come to expect with just about every episode, every season. But every now and then, the writers and the producers are going to throw some kind of a plot twist in there. They're going to build some kind of a climactic arc. They're going to give you something that's really going to draw your attention in. And at the end of the term, you're kind of just sitting there thinking, well, what are they going to do next year? Because they really kind of put a lot of cards on the table here. So you really have to think, well, how are they going to top this? What's in store for next year? And I think that's really where we are because we went through a large contingency of generational political issues that even as, as soon as maybe three or four years ago, the best legal scholars in the world would have told you these are hands-off issues from the court. Either they've already been solved or they're things that are then on arrival. And yet, Here we are at the end of the term. We have seminal decisions. Really, anything published in the last three weeks of the term could have been a term-defining decision on its own, and yet we have six, seven, eight cases that really kind of, you know, grab everybody's attention. Well, and I thought, too, that um, it was interesting when you looked at a couple of things. First of all, I think the two big curveballs were, one, everyone knew eventually Stephen Breyer was going to retire, but kind of how it happened was a little surprising. I heard stories of him going in that morning when they announced it and running up and down the halls to get get his colleagues because it actually got leaked out, which is a theme we will we will continue with in the Supreme Court this year. It got leaked out a little sooner than he planned for it to, and he didn't want his colleagues to, to hear about it from the news media. So you never really know. I mean, that's, that's kind of the... Uh the allure or the mystique about the Supreme Court. And I think that's why the leak was really kind of substantial in and of itself. And I'll be more than happy to talk about that. But I think the issue with the Supreme Court is that everything that we hear behind the scenes really kind of is, it's either hearsay, it's happenstance, right. it's rumors, it's whispers. There could be rumors that Sonia Sotomayor is running up and down the halls doing push-ups or whatever it might be. But we really don't know because there is a very strong veil of confidentiality that happened in that building. And we don't know, maybe that Justice Breyer had already talked about it with the other justices. Maybe it wasn't passing, but generally speaking, you assume that the collegiality or the professionalism of the justices approach their day-to-day lives with, because they do talk a lot. They interact with each other fairly often. It's not like 
they have their own separate camps in the building and they never interact. There is a lot of interaction that happens in that building. And I'm not entirely sure if Justice Breyer did or did not tell them, but again, we may never know. I think that's kind of the the allure here is, you know, it's always that what if oh, and kind I of love scenario. It. I love that. And I think it's important for the court to have that. That's why the leak of the initial, whatever we want to call it, the first draft of the Roe decision or the Dobbs decision, I should say, uh, was leaked. It was such a breach for most people that know anything about the court uh, to have that. I think for the average person, they're used to the information being leaked out, right? Um, but for yeah. people that know about the court they know how unusual that was yeah i mean i mean there's a a dozen different factors that really kind of make this one of the most unusual and yet also one of the most interesting things that court watchers or even the public has seen in a very long time because surprisingly it's actually not unheard of for information to leak out of the court ahead of time it's really not something that we've never heard of i believe there, there is a law professor at the university of georgia who put out a tweet where he actually provided a thread of different examples of situations where rumors or information, even on cases before they were officially, you know, the opinions were officially released, that were leaked to popular media. And obviously there was a strong reprisal within the court itself to kind of button down those issues. But what was so surprising about this was really kind of two factors. The first of which is that in the entire history of the U.S. Supreme Court, as far as our records show at least, there has never been a situation where an entire draft opinion was not only released to a, me- to a news media outlet, but that opinion itself was actually then re-released for public viewership. Generally speaking, if we ever have any kind of materials that get out of the building, it's going to be paraphrased in a right. newspaper article of some kind. It's going to be, hey, these are the core hits. This is the main points. This is what we got from this. We're not going to leak this out, generally speaking, because these news media outlets don't want to run into any kind of legal liability issues, right? It's really untested waters when it comes to the Supreme Court. We don't know. I mean, you can get into issues like, you know, the Pentagon Papers or anything like that, where obviously there's a pretty strong core litigation there of what a news media outlet's rights are when it comes to that kind of information and disseminating it. But you never know with the court. I mean, and then again, they're probably going to be the ones making the decision on that, right? The other side of this is, it's the most important case in probably a decade, right? I mean, there's always that element there, too. I think that's why if this had been a leak of some random case that people really weren't interested in, the only people that would be talking about this would be social scientists, right. legal scholars, right? Right. right? But because it was the Dobbs decision, we are, wow, okay, we are seeing this opinion, what we're fairly confident it's going to be. And this draft itself was already three months old by the time it was leaked on May 2nd. Right. And so who knows? I mean, as we saw when the final decision came out, it was di- very different than what was ultimately leaked. I mean, I think the framework was similar, but there was a lot more added to it, obviously. Absolutely. I mean, as actually, um, if you would like, there is an article by Dr. Adam Feldman who runs Empirical SCOTUS. He does a lot of work for SCOTUS Blog, which is more or less the main outlet for these kinds of um, this, this kind of this, uh, discussion where if you even have any general knowledge of the Supreme Court, you can go on their website and they break these cases down. You can find documents. But Dr. Feldman and myself actually did a comparison between the original draft and what was eventually published. And there was more added to the newer draft. Obviously, you would expect it's a first draft. There's going to be some changes made. Generally speaking, what changed, though, wasn't exactly like the core components of the, um, the holding from the original draft. It was more or less adding substance. It was adding more kind of a 
foundation in the case law, right? So it was more of an expansion than trying to more or less generally changing the entire foundation of the decision. Right. So let's talk about the kind of three areas that I think were the ones that have been the most controversial. And there might be more, but I think the Dobbs decision obviously is number one. The plethora of cases related to religion, establishment clause, that kind of thing. And then, of course, the New York State uh, Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which was, um, you know, another one of those 6-3 positions. So we'll talk a little bit about all three of these. Dobbs, of course, didn't... I was surprised up until the end. An hour before the decision came out, I thought it was it was likely or could happen that John Roberts would weave some sort of compromise that would uphold Dobbs and... Um, but not overturn Roe, which, but as I understood it, and I could be wrong about this, um, that the that the government's attorneys basically said you can't do that. You got to do if you uphold Dobbs, you got to overturn Roe. See, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, here's the interesting part, and I think that, like you said, the six three decision is something that I really kind of want to focus on, just because I think we really kind of need to rethink what we think a controversial decision is, right? Because if we ever think of, like, controversial decision in the Supreme Court, your mind immediately goes to, oh, it's a 5-4 decision. Oh, it's a 5-4 decision. Oh, it's a 5-4 decision. And that's obviously not the lay of the land anymore, right? The ideological balance of the court is going to tell you that you have, on any given day, at least two or three core conservatives. You're going to have Justice Thomas. You're going to have Justice Alito. And you're probably going to have Justice Barrett, Right. You'll have the core, the core three liberals, who now Justice Jackson, then Justice Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan. And then you have justices that can more or less float on certain issues, John Roberts being the main one, right? But a lot of this kind of float power and the power of the chief to really you know, bolster these co- potential compromises is this idea that he represents the swing vote. In this situation, he doesn't, right? And I think the most interesting thing that we kind of fell into when we, ra- when we kind of read through the Dobbs decision is, John Roberts obviously lobbied for exactly that, right? If you read the concurrence, he concurs in the judgment, but he also provides a concurring opinion where he says, if I had gotten my way, more or less, I would have upheld Mississippi's law and not gone any further. I would have upheld the 15-week ban, and that would have been the end of it. Obviously, that's not where the final vote's laid. No, absolutely not. And then I personally thought that Justice Thomas's uh, concurring uh, opinion with the majority was out of line. I think he threw a bunch of stuff in there that didn't need to be in there. Of course, he's a justice, so he can do what he wants. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think Alito's decision actually looks addresses those issues, talking about same-sex marriage, birth control, that kind of stuff. Um, I just thought Thomas was out of line, and I usually don't, but I thought he was out of line in that decision. Now, he has the right to write whatever he wants to, but I don't think he helped the situation. No, I think you're absolutely right. And for those of you that are kind of wondering what we're talking about here, generally, when a justice writes a concurring opinion, it doesn't bear the weight of the majority opinion itself, right? There's the majority opinion, and if there's a justice who agrees with what the court did, but maybe wants to add some context for why they supported it, or maybe what they would have done different, even though they do still support the decision, Justice Thomas wrote a concurring opinion. He more or less laid out this idea of, hey, there is a legal basis for how the court decided Roe in 1973. And there are a lot of subsequent cases that built on that same case law, and we should be revisiting all of those cases as well. Well, the cases that fall under that designation are same-sex marriage, right, contraceptive care, 
or the right to access contraceptive care, right? It is these major landmark privacy issues in substantive due process rights that a lot of court observers, when we got to this part of the opinion, we were like, oh, okay, um, what do we do with this? Because if the last few years has been any kind of indication is that a lot of what Justice Thomas writes in his dissents or writes in his concurring opinions are kind of a precursor to what's kind of building up down the road, right? We've seen the inklings of potential decisions to overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey coming out of Justice Alito and Justice Thomas's concurrences and dissents for the last 15, 20 years, right? So if it's any indication, we really don't know. But yeah, I think a lot of people were kind of having that same kind of sentiment of, all right, this is concerning, but we don't know what this means entirely. We're talking to Jake Truscott. He's a Ph.D. candidate student and an expert in the Supreme Court. And we're talking about what happened in the Supreme Court session. Let's talk a little bit about um, all these cases related to, related to religious freedom, because it did seem like a theme there that it is kind of returning to more of a protection of the free exercise part of that clause, more so than the Establishment Clause. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that was definitely a common theme. And that was something that was actually pointed out in one of the major dissents this year is that there seems to be this more or less preference from the court right now to emphasize the free expression clause over the establishment clause. And I I think that in some respects, that's obviously, you know, that's true. I mean, that reflects the decisions, but also I think it might be pointing out this idea that, hey, we have a long line of litigation that shows that there are certain restrictions on what public officials, especially individuals acting in an official capacity at public schools, what they can and can't do with respect to religious demonstrations. And I think the best place to kind of start there would be this uh, case that came out of the state of Washington in Kennedy versus Bremerton School, where for those of you that haven't been keeping up with it, there was an assistant football coach who had been exercising religious freedom by holding prayer circles on the 50-yard line after football games And generally what it started as private observances, he would just go to the 50-yard line, he would pray, eventually turned into large prayer circles. Well, historically, the Supreme Court has approached this idea that in terms of public prayer at public schools, the only real division is obviously that individuals acting in their official capacity can't lead prayer, more or less because it leads to some form of coercion. This idea that because they are in positions of power, because they have some kind of say over the academic, or in this case, athletic success of their students, they can't be doing this because it could potentially coerce them into participation, right? And what we essentially saw in this case was exactly that. It was a situation of, can the coach actually exercise his religious demonstrations on the 50-yard line? Was he acting in an official capacity as a football coach? Was he coercing players or other individuals to join him? And essentially what came out of this 6-3 decision authored by Neil Gorsuch is, Not only had the coach been exercising his demonstrations privately, he had not been actually engaging other individuals to join him, but he essentially made no attempt to do so, right? And I think that's kind of more or less where the controversy draws up here and what at least what the dissent came out of, right? Well, and he just sort of went to the middle of the field and over time more and more people joined him. That's absolutely. and, and, And I think that that's actually what the whole free establishment, I mean, the free exercise, that's a great example of free exercise in my view, but I would fall with the majority on that one, that's for sure. Um, We're not going to have time to talk about New York State Rifle uh, and uh, versus Bruin, but I think the message of this court, Jake, is legislators, you need to legislate. 
executive branch, don't try to govern by executive order all the time <laughs> and let <laughs> us do our job. <laughs> Absolutely. That was definitely the common theme is that there needs to be some kind of legislative prerogative in these areas. That I think what's most interesting about this term, if I can just end on it, is historically the way the courts always approach that concern, because it's not new for legislatures to not be engaging in policymaking in these spheres. right? But what we have seen over the last 20 years as legislative policymaking has become more frugal in the minds of most, right? We are getting more contention. People don't want to cooperate. They found it's easier just to litigate these issues, just to pass a law or to get stonewalled, shop it to a district court, make its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they'll let the justices decide, right? That's been the general modus operandi for the last 20 years or so. But historically, what we've seen is because there's been such a strong division on the court itself that hey, we don't want to pick up these issues because we don't want to offer some kind of, you know, a final ruling on these major issues. But what we're seeing now, because there is this ideological balance that obviously favors the conservative wing of the court, that they are comfortable taking up these issues, they are comfortable litigating in these spheres. But the overall message is, listen, these issues need to be litigated in the legislatures, right? There are obviously a separation of powers, exactly as you said. And I think that over time, we're going to start seeing that message more and more and more. Absolutely. Jake True Scott, thank you so much for giving us some time today and laying all of that out. Um, it's an important topic, and hey, I can't wait for next year. Thanks for being with me today. Um, absolutely. <laughs> it's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. <laughs> the letter. Uh, I was there when he read the letter. Um, This is something uh, Brittany Greiner being uh, held in Moscow. Uh, We believe the Federation is wrongfully, uh, she's being wrongfully detained uh, in Moscow at this time. Uh, This is an issue that is a priority for this president. It is the Martha Zoller Show. So that was poor little Corrine, the new press secretary who Uh, was commenting on this letter from this WNBA player who's been detained in Russia. Uh, She evidently had CBD oil on her, and so they are keeping her and could potentially face a 10-year term in jail if she is convicted of having an illegal substance. And so um, it's it's really interesting because, as a lot of people know, Corrine is married to a CNN a reporter and is is um, in a same-sex marriage. This NBA player is also in a same-sex marriage. So later on, they got this question about, well, what's, you know, he'd be going, you know, if this was LeBron James, they would have already moved heaven and earth to uh, get him out of there. But because nobody knows who this woman is and because she's gay, they're not moving. Well, that's just not true. I think it could be more true that it's not LeBron James than it is uh, that the woman is a lesbian. Yeah, I was about to say, there's a way better <laughs> point to be made that just there's a massive difference in the following between the NBA and the WNBA than it's because she's gay. I don't think that anybody out there is like, well, we'd be moving heaven and earth to get her back, but she's gay, so, eh, you know, no, I don't think that's happening that. with anybody. I think it's much more that if it were LeBron James, they would have moved heaven and earth to yes, get Yes, but him that's back. just because of the popularity of the NBA and Absolutely. more specifically LeBron James. Absolutely. Even though, you know, he needs he's not as popular as he used to be. But that's okay. In certain circles. In certain circles. Anyway, so there was a reference uh, to Charlemagne the God, who is this morning show guy. 
uh, who is uh, one of the few people that Joe Biden actually did an interview with uh, leading up to the 2020 election. And he's a very progressive liberal guy, but he got noted because of his comments about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And here they are. Is the cowardice of the Democratic Party catching up to them? All right. They know what Republicans have been planning for decades. Republicans have never hidden their agenda. They have shown and told us what play they are going to run. And for some reason, Democrats never craft a defense to stop. All right. I mean, we didn't just get here yesterday, people. Yes. It's easy to point the finger at Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and say, yeah, they put three judges on the Supreme Court. That's true. But I feel like the cowardice and inaction from Democrats caused a lot of this. I have a million questions that people smarter than me can answer. And he goes on to say the point that everybody has made is that uh, President Obama, for a year, had 60 Democrat senators in addition to the majority in the House of Representatives. And it was not a priority for him to codify Roe v. Wade. His priority was passing the uh, ACA. Okay, so he chose. He wanted the ACA. He did not want to over to codify Roe v. Wade. And, um, you know, he got what he wanted. But there was an opportunity. There have been several opportunities since Roe v. Wade uh, was decided to codify it in law and Everybody knows that that's what you're supposed to do with a Supreme Court decision. And I I use the example of the Voting Rights Act also because people want to say the Voting Rights Act has been, uh, you know, overturned. It's not true. It is Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act has been overturned. And the reason why is Section 4 is the criteria by which states and municipalities and counties are singled out for their voting practices to have special looks by the Department of Justice. And very interestingly, part of the reason why I think the Congress has not codified this and updated it for today is because if you were to look at southern states, the turnout of black voters is off the charts in southern states And you can't make the case that anybody is being prevented from voting. I mean, heck, it was 15 years ago that the Section 4 uh, thing of the, of I'm sorry, it was almost over 10 years ago that the Section 4 part was overturned. And if you look at the amount of minority voting in the states that were supposed to be suppressing the vote, it's off the charts. You can't make a case that anybody's doing anything to suppress the vote. You can make that case, though, in New York and in Delaware and in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. That I know Philadelphia is in Pennsylvania, making the point. You can make that case there because they limit days of voting. You have to register in a party. There's many more hoops to jump through. It's very interesting how this whole thing has flipped. And then if you look at elected officials by demographic. You have many more elected officials throughout the South, and not just federal. People want to just focus on federal. Federal is only 535. Okay, there are thousands of elected officials all across the country. There's more than 10,000 elected officials that are African-American throughout the South. And I would argue that a county commissioner or a city council member or someone like that, while they don't make as much money as a congressman makes... They have a lot more impact on your day-to-day life.
Now, the question as to why more haven't moved on to the federal level, you know, it's that's a question you can ask. But we've got uh, African-American senators in both parties now. We've got African-American congresspeople in both parties now. You know, I think that's a better thing than to say, oh, well, we've got African-American elected officials, but they're all Democrats. I think it's much more reflective to see that there is a wide view of points of view within all people. I jokingly say when I give a speech, why is it that it's only white men that are allowed to have a different point of view? But if you're black or brown or a woman, you're supposed to all think alike. That's just not realistic. Your, your thought process is as much a part of your demographics as it is of your situation you grew up in. Poor people in West Virginia have the same problems that poor people in inner city Atlanta have. Okay, poor people in, in um, Kentucky, who are mostly white, have the same problems that poor black people in other parts of Kentucky have. Much more, it's economics and education that separate us rather than the kind of petty things we like to separate ourselves with, like sexual orientation, color of our skin, and uh, whether you got tattoos or not, okay? Those kinds of things are not the real things that separate us. The things that separate us are economics and education. And while there are barriers to all of those things for everyone, okay, there is nobody that has a monopoly on being discriminated against, There has been a long history of discriminating against black people. That is true. And it continues today. But there's also discrimination against other kinds of people that have nothing to do with their race. I'll admit, when I see somebody tattooed up to their neck, I'm not saying I discriminate against them, but I look twice. And I think about the money that it costs. I always think about how much it costs. Okay, I think about the money it costs to do that. And what could you have spent that money on? And what didn't you spend your money on because you were spending on that? That's what I think about. Maybe that's because I'm a capitalist. But on the other hand, I'm in favor of free expression. You ought to be able to do whatever you want with your own body. I think that there is, though, a controlling interest. You know, people say, oh, Martha, I got you. Then you must be in favor of abortion. No, there's more than one body involved here in this abortion decision. There is the body of the man that impregnated the woman. There is also the body of the child that is inside the woman. And there are other interests. There are compelling interests. That's what the court found, that there are compelling interests for the states. That's what had to be clarified. Because it's not just the life of the mother that you're dealing with. While that is a very, very important part and maybe the most important part. It is also important, and and I got the text message uh, yesterday, I don't think we read it, about what is the role of fathers in all of this. I, I agree with that. That's why in the heartbeat bill, we are holding fathers a lot more responsible. People that are the fathers of these children are going to be a lot more responsible than they have been. But also, there are situations where a man is not even told that a woman is pregnant, and then she makes the decision, and somehow the far left think that's okay. You got into the situation together. Shouldn't that person be included in the decision also? I I just think that there are it's a more complicated decision, and that's why the court decided the way they did. 
because there are there is more than one interest here. It is not only, and I know it's hard for people that are pro-choice to hear this, but there is more than one interest here. There is the woman's interest, but there's also the person who impregnated her and his interest, and there is also the interest of the child. And that's why most people, and I don't agree with the statement I'm about to make, but most people believe first trimester is while it's not great to have an abortion, I don't think anybody thinks it's a good thing to have an abortion. It's something that most people can get their head around and and support, a first trimester limitation. I just don't know how in today's world with sonograms and things like that, that when you get much past the first trimester and you see the fingers and toes and formation of the baby and the hair and the things that you can see and the movement, I, I just don't see how you can think it's okay in the second or third trimester unless there is a, a severe interest of of life of the mother, health of the mother, that kind of thing. But the real truth is, most of the time, if there is a real severe uh, threat to the mother's life, the baby will spontaneously abort because the mother is going to try to save, the mother's body is going to try to save itself as opposed to that. That's not all, that doesn't help in it, happen in every case, but it happens a lot. Um, there's there's just so much we need to consider. And I do agree. One thing I do agree with the pro-choice people is it ought to be a lot more ability for doctors to be able to have this discussion in their offices in an open way. Because the bad old days weren't all bad, okay? There were a lot of private adoptions that were done. There were a lot of doctors that counseled with women and gave good advice, Okay, there has never been one instance of a back alley abortion. Okay, there has never been one instance of a coat hanger abortion. All the things they want you to believe, there has never been one instance of that. But I think even though I am pro-life, and my friend Bill Crane said he was pro-choice, we can have a discussion and probably come up with a compromise that we both can live with. And I think that's why we have to have this discussion. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, another person in the Biden administration that doesn't know anything about the economy, but that's Pete Buttigieg. And um, we're going to catch up on a couple of things. We've got some responses to some questions that you sent in by email, but we're... We are going to be talking to Ron Hart first. It's the Martha Zoller Show. Hey, Ron, did you hear that President Biden had a big call with 24 celebrities who were really upset about Roe v. Wade? And they gave them him a piece of their mind. He needed it. Um, but that, that is the response. The response is, let's find out what the celebrities want, not what actual people yeah. want. Yeah, that's what I think about on weighty issues in this country. Uh, I always turn to the drummer for Third Eye Blind to see what he <laughs> thinks about the matter. So t- until they report in, I really don't know what I think. <laughs> I mean, it is just, it's like you can't make this up. If we weren't living it and having to deal with the consequences of it, it would be really funny. Yeah, he wants them to go on radio and TV and you know, talk about the Roe versus White. They, they start every... Every con, uh, every construct about Roe versus Wade that the Supreme Court overturned 
Roe versus Wade, a woman's right to get an abortion stops. Which is not true. They pushed it back to the states, right? So these, these knuckleheads in Oregon and California that are complaining, it's like easier to get an abortion out there. Well, I think it's so funny when people say, well, what about the, the woman that gets pregnant in South Dakota and she can't? I said, well, then don't move to South Dakota. If you don't like yeah. the laws in South Dakota, then don't move to South Dakota. You recently moved to Tennessee. You moved there because the laws were more advantageous for you, not because you didn't like Georgia anymore, but it was better for you. That's the yeah, way it broken is. Into, yeah. That's right. <laughs> getting broken into in Atlanta. It's nice to pull up your car in Chattanooga and have glass on the ground. <laughs> that's that's a right. nice feeling. <laughs> that's right. No, but the thing is, the thing that's great about Atlanta, I mean, about the United States, what it really is is like 50 countries, right? And, right. And you can live where you want to live. You can do what you want to do. And it's supposed to be this loose federal government at the top, but that's not what's happened. And you're seeing that the average person, not the person on Twitter or TikTok or all the other places, but real people who get up and go to work every day, they are not happy with the situation right now. Right. Well, if, if there's people, the stars want to help with abortion, they will get up there, some of their Learjets, some of their airplanes, and fly people from Mississippi or, or Arkansas where abortions are really already very, very hard, by the way. It's not like these things are prolific in these states. They're right. very hard to get currently. So if you want to, you know, just do do the you know, underground railroad to uh to Chicago or wherever you know, wherever you want to go. If you're in Atlanta, if you're in Georgia and Georgia ends up doing the heartbeat beat bill where it holds, then you go to North Carolina. You know, you're around the edge of North Carolina. It's about a two hour drive from Atlanta to get to the western end of North Carolina. There'd be an abortion abortion clinic there. That's what's gonna happen. The free market system will always compensate for any changes in the dynamic. And this is a change in the dynamic. So uh, you know, personally, I'm, I'm pro-choice. Uh, I'm a libertarian. I don't think the government tells us anything we need to be doing. I, I don't like the idea of abortion. I've never had one. Never, my kids have never had one. I don't even know if anybody's had one. But I just don't like limiting my choices. I, I, I just, I get it on the other side. I get both sides of the argument. I totally get both sides of the argument, right? But, you know, and I guess these pictures of babies and wombs that have happened the last 20, 30 years, it's going to highlight for some people to, to the extent a kid is developed at you know three six you know a month in the womb well i think that is a big thing really actually in 2002 ge came out with that first commercial for their fantastic sonograms and it's that commercial everybody remembers it where it's a sonogram picture and then the, this thing comes around and when it comes to the front of the screen it's a baby's face and you can see it clearly not like the sonograms our kids had where they were grainy and you the doctor was pointing to stuff and you said you could see it but you really couldn't but now they're really good pictures and that has changed that has changed a lot of people's minds but the thing i always want to point out separate the emotion from it Okay, there are a lot of people that get they if they don't like what their what their cancer center offers uh, at Erlanger in Tennessee, they'll go to Emory. Uh, If you don't have the proper heart procedures at one hospital, you'll go down to the Mayo Clinic. Traveling for health care procedures is not an unusual thing in America. Yeah, we need to stop them because they don't do it across state lines. It's funny, Mark, you mentioned that I'm actually in Atlanta. Right now, getting some health care, getting my physical at Piedmont. I just like the doctors there better. They've been better, and i got to have a colonoscopy, so I'm going to shop Chattanooga. I'm a cash payer, you know, $5,000 deductible in retirement, so i got to pay for it myself. I'm going to call two or three places, and you'll be shocked. I had to have a chest x-ray the other day. Everybody thinks they're real expensive. 
was $180 in Chattanooga for a chest X-ray, a CT on my chest at Prime Imaging. So I just paid him $180. I'd rather pay $180 and fill out paperwork for like four months trying to get paid. That's right. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Having and, it, and it's hard to separate the emotion, Ron, but you being a libertarian, that's kind of what y'all do. You separate the emotion from things and you look at it and go, okay, what's the fair thing to do? That's That's really all... It is. But I want to talk about these Biden poll numbers for a minute because uh, there is one outlier poll that just came out that the Democrats are loving because it's a little better than the last 10 there have been. But it's it seems like he just can't do anything right. Yeah, he's an embarrassment to the country. He's an embarrassment to himself. It's almost elder abuse to have him him in office right now. I mean, he's I don't know who's pulling the strings. I mean, the real story, if you're the New York Times or even the Washington Post or even the Wall Street Journal, who who are making these decisions? I mean, is there is the chief of staff controlling things? Uh, you know, it's not his fault. He's a, he's an old blue dog Democrat. He was old school, almost Dixiecrat for years and years and years. His instincts are really more like Sam Nunn and 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 uh, uh, Zell Miller, I think, in, on his his core instincts. You hear him talk, he sounds like something from the '60s, which is about the yeah. time he got involved in politics. Yeah, Corn so, Pop was know. a bad dude. Yep. Yeah, he was. He was a bad dude. That's when he finished top of his class. Turned out he was in the bottom of his class. But, you know, he, he's, you know, right now he can throw his own surprise party. And he, just, he just doesn't know what's going on there. He has good days and bad days. He looks down the world stage. Uh, he, he doesn't make the country look good. His policies are terrible. Uh, if you, you you don't become a Democrat, certainly not a left-wing Democrat, and understand economics. You just don't understand it. And they think about raising gas prices. People live in Brooklyn. Who live in LA, who walk to work, or you know, basically commute to work. They, they don't want to hurts middle America. I mean, the people they're supposed to be representing, the blue collar people, hurt tremendously by the baby formula going up, by gas prices going up. They can't get to work. It's not good for anybody. And I'm not really sure that you know, we're the only one in the world doing much for the environment. You think China and India are doing anything for the environment right now? They're just kicking our butt with manufacturing. No, I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And we've got to get back to the point. I was telling somebody yesterday, okay, Obama wasn't the best guy in the world, but he at least grew the economy 1% a year. He had a couple of people on his economic team that were good, Austin Goolsby and Larry Summers, who actually were bona fide economics, economics right. people. They understood how it worked. It was slow growth, but at least it wasn't negative, all right, for eight years. Right. Even though he was kind of a progressive Democrat, he at least didn't want the economy to go in the tank. This bunch now, they say, no, we want you to hurt a little bit so that you'll come over to our side. Well, that's never a, a strategy that works. Yeah, we can remake it. And they, and they forget about inflation. You and I remember inflation in 79, 80. It was just rampant. It really hurts people. And, and it's been, been a bad stock market. Not only has the stock market gone down, bond prices have gone down because rates have gone up. I mean, it's been a ter- it's not, usually when the stock market goes down, bonds rally because the economy's slowing and, and, the, and, and the rates come down. So your bonds rally. I mean, it's both sides. If you have a balanced portfolio right now, you're getting hit from both sides. It's not It's not pretty. And people eventually, there's, there's kitchen table issues that will affect the average American. And you never see so many FJBs or I did that stickers on these on these gas station pumps. I mean, that really hits people at home. They know he can lie about it. He can get up there and pander and, and blame Putin. But everybody knows. You know, the average person is a lot smarter than, than the Democrats give them credit for. Yeah, it is so crazy. It's so crazy. Well, listen, we appreciate what you're writing about this week. Uh, I wrote a little bit about the 4th of July. 
my great grandfather times twelve signed the Declaration of Independence, John Hart. Oh and wow! And I'm just always kind of been fascinated with the founding fathers, what they went through. His family got, you know, the, the soldiers came to his house. He had thirteen kids. They fled. You know, his wife died. I mean, it was, it, they they went through a lot. It, was, it made January sixth <laughs> look like nothing. <laughs> they went through to sign the Declaration of Independence, and and that, and then this Constitution that they wrote is a phenomenal document. It was holding up. It's held up for over two hundred fifty years. Wow, that I did not know that about you. I yeah. did not know yeah, that he's about from Trenton, you. New Jersey. Yeah, he had thirteen kids, and they fled to, to to Virginia, which sadly became West Virginia. And he had thirteen kids, and I'm related to one of his kids. I just I guess, to him. Well, we'll talk about that next week. Sounds good. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com, and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.